From the McCourney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And today, Michael, we're talking with Brad Vivian, who we, you and I, uh, know well. He's the director of the uh, McCourney Institute Center for Democratic Deliberation. And he's a professor of communication arts and sciences here at Penn State. Brad, today is going to help us look back at the riots in Charlottesville, Virginia, that happened this time last year. Right. He brings a unique perspective to share on the topic, both because he grew up in Charlottesville and uh, also because he studies public memory, uh, including around uh, Confederate monuments. Right. His, his uh, most recent book is uh, Commonplace Witnessing, which uh, really kind of speaks about the concept of, of public memory and how those memories are... Um, articulated through monuments. The uh, Mood of the Nation poll was in the field uh, right after the Charlottesville uh, episode, and uh, we had got lots of reactions to, the, uh, to what happened in Charlottesville. One thing we noticed when looking at this is that people outside of the South, <laughs> throughout the country, but people that tend to think of themselves as conservatives, uh, talked about uh, preserving Southern monuments as though it was preserving their own their own heritage. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They're from the North. Right. Which is interesting. <laughs> and um, what is it exactly that that it is that they want to preserve? And and, you know, um, how does this reflect on their understanding of the Civil War? Right? Well, right. And we'll let Brad get into some of it. Right. So uh, Brad is going to give us a, uh, you know, uh, his perspective on Charlottesville. And it, it centers around the monuments themselves and how to understand them and how to understand the conflict around them. Yeah, so I look forward to hearing this. Okay, well, let's bring Brad on and Jenna. Brad, thank you for joining us today on Democracy Works. Sure, thank you for having me. So uh, we are going to talk today about public memory, but before we get to that, I'd like to start maybe with some of your own memories of of growing up in, in Charlottesville. Um, can you tell us uh, what that experience was like for you and maybe what was going through your mind as you watched uh, some of the um, events unfold down there last summer? Sure. Um, public memory and personal memory, <laughs> I've realized in thinking about our discussion today, intersects in some interesting mm-hmm. ways. So Charlottesville, when I was uh, living there, was like a very nicely kept secret. Uh, it was a great university town, uh, UVA being one of the so-called public ivies. And it was one of those university towns, not unlike what State College has become over the past 10 to 20 years, one of those university towns where it's a small-time living but kind of a cosmopolitan feel. And the story of Charlottesville is also, uh, in terms of historical memory and trajectory into the future, where uh, Virginia is going as well and where certain parts of the South are going, Um, Charlottesville is now in the middle of what's sort of a growing interstate corridor between D.C. and then on down to Richmond and Virginia and um, Newport News and Norfolk. So um, a lot of the metaphorical and literal traffic there is from places like Pennsylvania and New Jersey and upstate New York and so forth coming down to study and live and work there. Uh, And as we know from the recent presidential elections, turning a red state, at least purple, if not blue, um, is happening in parts of North Carolina as well. Mm-hmm. And so the, this Robert E. Lee statue was presumably there, you know, your your childhood, your time growing up. Was it something that you really thought about or that people talked about or really kind of paid, paid attention to? What's been so interesting about the last year and the, the aftermath of the riots in Charlottesville 
is thinking back to my time there, but also as a scholar of public memory, of how much we didn't notice, didn't talk about, didn't remember in a literal sense. So obviously the Robert E. Lee statue was there, but it it wasn't a point of discussion, and I want to severely qualify this, a point of discussion in the kind of um, demographic I was part of, university-based, white middle class, and so forth. And uh, for a variety of reasons, in the post-desegregation uh, era, um, the city had taken steps to ensure that it was still relatively well segregated with the removal of this neighborhood called Vinegar Hill. So it has its own uh, racial past of division. But when I was there, primarily in the 1980s, early 1990s, we're in this, what I would call now in the wake of the riots, this in-between space uh, where um, the removal of that largely African-American neighborhood in Vinegar Hill had happened resistance to desegregation and so forth, the growth of suburbs. So these things were rendered a little bit invisible. Uh, And in the wake of the riots, what has struck me is how much we didn't talk about the omnipresent Confederate iconography, the Robert E. Lee statue being the typical example of that. What we did talk about a lot, what was very much... um, part and parcel of everyday public memory there was uh, Thomas Jefferson and his legacy and the university. That university uh, is not just is not just an institution of higher education, but it's sort of like a, a form of memory in concrete and stone itself. Um, it's, a, it's a praise to Jefferson. And so part of growing up in what I described as this kind of um, nice secret enclave of Charlottesville was knowing about, say, you know, all the Confederate monuments in Richmond, not too far down the road, um, but not discussing them in the way that we're discussing them now, one year after August 2017. Um, So before we get too far down this path, can you just tell us what public memory is and how it forms? Sure. So I think of public memory or collective memory as a metaphor. So the ways in which people talk, they say that we have kind of a collective or public memory of the Civil War, of the American Revolution. Of course, nobody alive today has a literal memory of those events. A lot of how public or collective memory forms, though, is in the original event, people testify to what they've seen and experienced and so forth. And eventually, as a community, we might build up stories about what happened. Parts of those stories may have close fidelity with historical fact, but they don't need to at all. Um, So some very prototypical examples, we tell the story that Betsy Ross stitched the first American flag. Um, There might not have been a person named Betsy Ross. Um, So historical memory, there's a lot of fact, but also mythology and so forth. And really the outcome of it, it's a metaphor in the sense of we say we have a historical memory as a way of continuing to tell a certain story uh, about where we came from, uh, what values we've sustained over time, uh, and therefore, in a sense, where we're going. And it's a story that I think, whether or not it's well-rooted in historical fact, that sense of memory is something, as an individual, you have a memory and it's, it's intimate to you, it's personal. So it's a sort of story that's personal and defining of who we are as a community. And therefore, it's even if it seems like it's not all that controversial, uh, a form of public memory can be actually quite political and contested. 
it seems like the the Lee statue in this case is kind of served as something onto which anyone can project their own feelings about the the Confederacy and kind of everything that that came along with that. Mm-hmm. the The events of Charlottesville, I think, have precipitated. It's complicated. A, a really interesting conversation about Lee in particular, but they precipitated that conversation uh, about Lee insofar as also Lee kind of represents a lot about how people think about Civil War history and Confederate history and so forth. And we can get into this in more detail if you want, but the initial thought or two for me is that um, there's a revision of Lee going on, which I think can be quite instructive. Part of me being a, a resident of the South a lot of my life and being exposed to statues of um, Lee Jackson, Nathan Bedford Forrest is just part of the community's iconography, um, again, is how much we didn't talk about those things. And that there's, to me, in, in terms of American memory, at a certain point, um, certain normative narratives, we seem to kind of make a bargain that we're going to remember those Confederate generals as sort of honorable heroes, in a sense, or at least part of the nation uh, and part of the South in particular will do so. Uh, and there was a great uh, editorial or two, maybe three or four, that circulated in the wake of Charlottesville saying if we go back and look at how um, Lee's slaveholding passed and so forth uh, and um, the kind of kindly general mythology is not that constructive maybe in uh, 2017, 2018. Right. And so the, the other um, part of this that, that you, I think, started to mention earlier is that these um, you know, many of these monuments didn't go up until well after the Civil War had ended, which in and of itself is kind of an interesting right. way, like kind of propping up something well after it had actually happened. And maybe to, to your point about those stories that might not actually always be rooted in, in fact that we keep going. Right. Um, one of the ways in which public memory can be really political is when certain uh, groups and individuals in society want to revert to an old story uh, or want to tell a new story as if things had been that way all along. In other words, um, if a group is advocating, particularly uh, a heavily armed group, is advocating we need to bring back the past, um, that is in and of itself not a gesture based on votes and deliberation but on threat of violence. And if the past was based on um, a political order in which some people mattered as human beings and they didn't. Again, the content of that tale is, is not democratic. So whether um, it's a kind of newly constructed or invented story about the past or we say we're going to restore things as they were, either way, that's a, that's a very strong anti-democratic, in my view, political gesture. or can be in certain circumstances. But you can track an increase in the building of Confederate memorials and monuments to certain moments in 20th century and now 21st century American history where you have pushes for first voting rights for African Americans and then uh, related to surges in immigration or loosening of immigration policy. So they serve a lot of purposes uh, and they're invented and reinvented for, even if it seems like a, a generally acceptable mythology to some people, they're not disinterested. They're they're useful for very specific purposes, and they symbolize what I would call non-democratic purposes, right. at the very least. How do you engage in democratic dialogue, deliberation, those types of things, when everyone kind of feels that that personal connection to to these issues? 
Sure. Um, that's really difficult. I've been mulling that over in my mind a lot. I'm not sure I have great um, immediate solutions, but part of the difficulty, I think, and I'm going to sort of anchor this in Charlottesville, there are two really specific difficulties for having that type of better dialogue. One reason is Charlottesville sort of demonstrates the disservice that in many cases what's called the mainstream media or corporate journalism um, creates for us in terms of having difficult dialogues about controversial parts of the past. So in the wake of Charlottesville, almost in real time on virtual media, but very quickly in the days after, like what's the dominant memory of Charlottesville and the aftermath for a lot of people is the quote-unquote controversy over what President Trump said and the both sides and there were very fine people. Now that's an important conversation to have, but um, what a lot of uh, mainstream profit-driven corporate media does in my sense is it puts the emphasis on what power holders say. So um, a lot of the sort of bandwidth of public memory has been taken up with what President Trump said and how the media reported it. Um, so that's not the greatest conversation. The other kind of problematic framework, I think, relates to um, what we were just talking about a moment ago, part of the um, gentler mythology of the Civil War South. There's a lot of Confederate iconography if you go back throughout 20th century American history that becomes part of mainstream culture, you know, Song of the South and Disney. Um, the textbook wars, if you will, in places like Texas and other southern states over the past generation have been about the fact that textbooks used to essentially say, well, they were both honorable sides. and. We were involved in this sort of moral struggle together, and we came out together and survived. So um, that's a kind of peace treaty, if you will, in historical terms. It's not the greatest framework for discussion about what a certain set of symbols actually meant and was used for. Um, so I think one of the things that Confederate memory did in, in and around the Unite the Right rally was it acted as what a lot of the literature also calls a kind of screen away from the conversation. So we sort of screened or filtered everything into a discussion of what the president said. So there are these narratives and these frameworks of storytelling around that prevent us. And I think we've got to break up those narratives and that storytelling and ask what these symbols really meant and ask if they're truly representative of what we might call Southern pride and history. They're not, there are many Souths. Uh, and ask how we can tell very different kinds of stories about those symbols. Right. So if, if people are looking to get outside of those those narratives that the you know mainstream media or, or what have you might have have been presenting, um, can you recommend any any resources, any any places to, to go to kind of get that deeper understanding or maybe kind of go beyond the, the conventional public memory that, that has formed? One place I think we need to go is to southern black communities. Um, their stories of the post-Civil War era and even 20th century era in, in respect to certain things like desegregation um, are not highlighted nearly enough or taken on their own account. There's huge millions of African Americans. Uh, do they recognize themselves as part of sort of this Confederate pride? They don't. So the story is just not representative. Uh, and I think we need to listen to those voices and think about the diversity and the richness and sources, what do we mean by pride uh, in that region? It 
probably means very different things depending on who you listen to. And this is stock and trade of the kind of politics of public memory, even if it's a nice sounding story. Who's telling the story? Who's telling the story over and over again from one generation to the next to make it seem natural? Um, there's something very unnatural in that respect uh, that's telling about a lot of Confederate nostalgia. At what point does public memory start to form about last year's riots? Have we started down that path yet? Or where where are we in that process? Charlottesville is going to be... Um, a uh, nodal point for a while. It's starting to show up. There's a South Park episode that references it. There's an Eminem song that references it. Um, Particularly in black communities, I think it's going to be a kind of uh, commonplace for a while. But um, I'm I'm concerned that we're not going to have the sort of conversations that we need to have. And the one that's most salient to me, I mentioned that Vinegar Hill uh, neighborhood. Uh, Vinegar Hill was a uh, really viable middle class black neighborhood, black independently owned businesses for a long time, from about 1920 to 1960. Um, and in the 50s and 60s, there was fierce resistance in Virginia to um, integration. And Vinegar Hill residents, there was a poll tax put on them, so they weren't actually able to vote in the city resolution that uh, wiped out the neighborhood and about 500 residents were displaced. All that was done under that um, mid-20th century version of the Confederate flag that I mentioned before. So when people are carrying around that flag in Charlottesville, um, a lot of city residents know what that means. And um, that, that version of the flag relates directly to that process of storytelling which took hold in the 50s and 60s, that the federal government is disturbing Southern heritage and pride and Confederate heritage, um, which is not the real conversation. So um, if I had like a wish, the public memory would make those connections and it would also be much more, we would learn nationally from the local scene much more. Um, People in Charlottesville are are debating this and they're going to be debating it for a long time. I know the city is divided in several ways over what happened, why it happened, and what it means. And in the cases of places like the Charleston shooting, like what happened in Charlottesville, precisely for the reasons that I said, is the communities are going through democratic processes to decide what story they want to tell and in what form. I think instead of imposing national media frameworks or sort of long-term mainstream stories about the nostalgic South onto those communities, we need to flip it and listen to a broad cross-section, a diverse cross-section of those residents themselves. If I had a wish list, that's how we would do public memory, as it were, in this case. Great. So we're going to close here with our Mood of the Nation poll questions. Um, right. Yeah. So um, thinking about about um, politics and, and kind of what's going on in, in the, the media, um, what makes you angry? So um, my wife could really give you the hidden transcript on this <laughs> from what I say at home. But um, the uh, there's a connection point here. When Richard Spencer began the the events of the Unite the Right rally, he led the Tiki Torched um, uh, band onto the grounds of UVA and they surrounded the Jefferson statue and shouting, you will not replace us and things like that. Um, he's a graduate of UVA. So... The symbolism of the university there, I think, is part and parcel of something happening more broadly. There are ways of talking about young people, particularly university students, 
that are disturbing to me and, and do make me angry. There's a whole vocabulary that's been generated. Um, and it's, it's not coincidental, I don't think, to the events of Unite the Right in recent nationalist populist uh, political movements in this country, uh, which is calling certain constituencies weak and not deserving of empathy. So um, that does make me angry. That seems like, a, a, to put it in general terms, a really unproductive place to be uh, in 21st century society. Now, what makes you proud? Proud? Well, I mean, just intuitively, I guess the connection point that comes up is the the flip side of that narrative about younger generations today is that I think, quote unquote, millennials get a really bad rap by and large. And um, I think proud is an accurate word to describe my experience of interacting with young people on college campuses today. They have incredible capabilities. They're dealing with uh, more as a generation, as a demographic of college going students than um, I think a lot of previous generations have dealt with just in terms of life, economy, national pressures on them, uh, testing regimes, and so forth. So uh, I'm proud to work with them. Okay. What makes you worry? Oh, uh, what makes me worry? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, what makes me worry is that um, is goes squarely to my interest in things like public memory and democratic deliberation, um, that... We are having what seem like debates about things like the post-Charlottesville experience, but also things closely connected, at least thematically, like immigration history and current policy and so forth. There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of quote-unquote debate. There's not a lot of substantive deliberation, uh, and I think that's an important distinction. Um, there, People have different politically motivated versions of this. I'm trying to step out of a partisan or stereotypical um, posture and say, we really do need to get better at talking to one another. Sure. And then finally, what gives you hope? Um, my son is 12 years old. He's going on to 13. And uh, it's his story to tell, but he had some struggles early in life. He's no longer a little boy. He's not quite a full-fledged teenager, but um, he's really in a, in a good spot. And it's um, kind of symbolic to me. A lot of things are possible that um, one might not have thought was possible not too long ago. That's great. Well, we'll leave it there. Brad, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Oh, that was a lot to chew on. Uh, very interesting, uh, um, you know, both the personal and the, uh, um, you know, the, the expert kind of reflection on, on what's going on here. Um, it occurred to me, Michael, while we were listening that um, this whole notion of a public monument is kind of um, the flip side of, of what we were talking about with um, protesting. Oh, yeah. You how's know, that, that? well, all right. So, so you know, last season we, we talked with Abe and we talked with Tommy Smith and, and there was this argument that, that protest is the expression of one individual to the community of, of a fundamental sense of dissatisfaction, that we are not living up to what we claim, that we are um, not treating everyone fairly, and that, that this is something I need to, um, to express. And when you look at public monuments and, and, and memorials, what you see is just the opposite of that. You see this effort anyway to uh, – or a claim anyway that um, here's something that whatever our differences are, we all agree. So every monument 
public monument kind of claims that. But what's so interesting about Charlottesville and about the statue of Robert E. Lee is that the claim was merely that, right? That that it was not, in, in, in fact, there was nothing universal about it. Right. I mean, in fact, that, that Robert Lee uh, monument that they were taking down was built in the 1920s. Right. So and many know, and that's true of many monuments right. in the South. So what's going on in, 19, in the 1920s? Well, you, you're, this is the high point of the Ku Klux Klan mm-hmm. in terms of their political power, in terms of their social power. Uh, you know, this is the height of Jim Crow South. Uh, so it, it's a monument that is a statement of. Well, they weren't even the victors. <laughs> That's sort of the odd thing <laughs> well, about it. But 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 ultimately they were. And in the South they were. They, and ultimately they were right. right because post Reconstruction, I mean, sort of their vision of Southern society really really mm-hmm. took hold. And 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 clearly, what this monument is meant to do um, is and and many of these happened not just in the twenties but in the fifties when you know you had post Brown versus Board of Education. Right. But I, I I think Brad made an important point that in this one year anniversary. Uh, he didn't make this directly, but he alluded to it that what we'll really be talking about are not these questions, which I think are really quite important about these monuments, but about Donald Trump and his reaction mm-hmm, to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as as Brad pointed out, it became all about Trump. And that's because Donald Trump wanted it to be all about Donald well, Trump. He got out there and making comments and he can rarely let something like that go by without putting himself in the middle of it and not as many past presidents would have as a force of as a voice of reconciliation, mm-hmm. but rather as trying to sharpen the divide. Right. And and trying to increase increase the conflict. And I think much of what we're gonna see when we come to the one year anniversary and the retrospectives and the looking back will be about Donald Trump mm-hmm. and about what this meant for Donald Trump's uh presidency and uh uh what his reactions were and where he is now and very little about the kinds of questions that are really importantly raised by the decision to maintain a monument. I do think the other thing that um, Brad's um, conversation uh, recalled to me was something in his book, which, um, you know, commonplace witnessing, um, he really speaks to the, the idea that there has been a shift public shift in terms of how we um, use these monuments and what they're what the the what is meant to be evoked they're not meant to be places that evoke the notion that you know here was something that uh, um, we have um, something to admire but rather something that we need to um, not forget that we need to um, um, accept as part of our history, even though we don't necessarily like it. Right. Well, this is something you see with many of the Holocaust memorials right. mm-hmm. or, or, uh, throughout Europe. Right. I mean, those, you know, these Robert E. Lee Memorial, for example, in Charlottesville, as we were saying, was built in the 1920s, the mm-hmm. height of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is where America was then. Right. But now it's, it, it's one where minorities have significant political power where we have done and continue to do more of a reckoning of uh, what our past was all about. And so it's only natural that our monuments, to the extent that we can build them mm-hmm. these days, mm-hmm. because it is such a controversial right. sort of thing, uh, reflect this. You know, the only thing that uh, the only thing else I wanted to say about this is that, um, you know, Obama said 
in his speech, I think in in uh, in Selma, uh, commemorating the, the the march on um, on uh, Birmingham, um, said that you know our strength as Americans comes from our ability and willingness to to look at the times when we did not live up to our ideals. Think how different that is from make America great again. Well, that's right. And, you know, people... It's a very different use of our past. Exactly. When George W. Bush made a speech opening the Museum of African American History on the Mall, he said precisely the same thing. <laughs> he said that, you know, Americans um, have these ideals. We don't live up to them, but it's, it's by challenging ourselves and by um, acknowledging when we fall short that that fact alone, that effort alone is what makes America great. Yeah. And we have come a long way from that. And, and what Charlottesville demonstrates, if nothing else, is how different a place we are in right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that might be a good place for us to end. Yeah, I think yeah. so, too. So this has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and recorded at WPSU on the Penn State campus. Uh, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com for more information about Brad's research and a link to the piece he wrote for the conversation about this topic. Yeah, the website also has a, um, a link for you to contact us. And uh, we'd love to hear your feedback about the show, suggestions about who we should ta be talking to, what kind of topics you'd like to hear about. Uh, again, democracyworkspodcast.com. And finally, if you like what you've heard today, uh, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thank you.